scripture reading this evening is from the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we will read verses 7 through 12. This is not a new sermon series that begins in the middle of a book. We'll get to that in time, but for now, let us go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 7 through 12, and hear from our God. Receive this with faith and with love. This is the word of God. Thus says the Lord. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Antonio Aparecido Firmino, best known as Satanic Tony, is a Brazilian spiritual guru, singer, filmmaker, unintentional comedian, and self-proclaimed ambassador of Lucifer on earth. Of all those titles, the most preeminent to me is one of unintentional comedic relief. In his efforts to preach a message of hellish doom and gloom with some kind of seriousness, he has taken advantage of every opportunity he can to go on TV, mostly those late, 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 late night talk shows, and become then, I believe, unintentionally on his part, the butt of many, many jokes through the country of Brazil in the early 2000s. The most famous of those situations was when he was in one of those programs fielding questions from the audience, and one random guy had the guts to call it out as he saw it and ask Satanic Tony what was on the minds of all Brazilians. How can someone who claims to have a pact with a devil like you be such a loser? Tony's initial lack of reaction, his face, became a meme representing our feelings when we face the empty claims of self-proclaimed big shots in any field or situation. How can someone who claims to be rich, powerful, intelligent, influential, like X, Y, or Z, be such a loser? I was recently reminded unintentionally, of course, of Satanic Tony by one of you. At the conclusion of one of the many ongoing big projects here at Trinity Church, one of you in an email, in all sincerity, I believe, asked kind of rhetorically, is it okay to be somewhat exhausted after all this good work we've done? And I think the point of that question was, why is it so hard sometimes to do the right thing 
for the Lord. We are doing the, word, the works of the Lord for the sake of the Lord's people, yet we feel tired, weary, discouraged. Is this normal? I'm afraid we all have probably asked that sometimes ourselves, some variation with, of that question in our walks with the Lord. Why is the work of the Lord so tiring sometimes, if not all times? After all, Jesus saved us, filled us with his Holy Spirit, brought us into the household of God the Father, the creator and sustainer of all things. Yet here we are. Maybe, as we're still laughing at the expense of satanic tawny, we might ask ourselves, what if I'm the loser? Shouldn't life be a bit easier for the daughters and the sons of the king of the universe? Paul, the apostle who wrote the letter to the Corinthians, someone who has suffered more for the sake of the gospel than probably all of us here together, has something to say about that for us tonight. I believe we have much to learn about our weaknesses and our suffering in this life. With a letter where Paul defends his apostolic credentials and his preaching of the gospel to a church who doubted him, probably asking a variation of how can someone who claims to have a covenant with God and be an apostle of Jesus like you be such a loser? Tonight, from 2 Corinthians, we'll hear that God uses the frail and the weak things of this world, like you, like me, to display his glory. In other words, yes, it is part of the plan to be somewhat exhausted sometimes. In summary, we will see tonight that our weaknesses and sufferings are the message we proclaim, the gospel of life in Jesus. Again, our weaknesses and our sufferings are the message we proclaim, the gospel of life in Jesus. We'll see that in three points this evening. First, our suffering magnifies God's power. We see that in verse 7. Our suffering magnifies God's power. Paul begins verse 7 saying we have a treasure. And then he moves on. And you're asking, what treasure is that? Since our text begins in the middle of Paul's argument, we must backtrack briefly this treasure he talks about here is the content of the previous paragraph from verses 1 through 6, summed up in verse 1. This treasure that we carry is the ministry of the gospel. The gospel as a treasure that we carry is a profound enough concept for an entire sermon series, so let's unpack it to understand something about it in one sermon. Have you ever thought about that? How the way we ministry the gospel is a treasure that the people of God carry with them, with us. In a world so desperate for approval, for answers, for life, for purpose, we, you and I, 
carry with us an answer to all of that, something that many people out there would pay a lot of money to have. Does our world crave approval? 2 Corinthians 3.9, we preach the ministry of righteousness, the good news of what God has done to transform and receive evil, wicked sinners into his family. Does our world crave answers? 2 Corinthians 4.6, we preach the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the good news that in Christ and only in him this world makes any sense. The people around us are all blindly and desperately looking in every corner of this dusty earth for life and for purpose. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We preach transformation into the image of Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to another. The good news that we can change ourselves, yes, but God can. And He will remake His people and this world into a new and glorious reality. What a treasure we have. And this wonderful news, friends, is just the context of our text. The gospel of Jesus is the priceless treasure that this world badly needs, and it was given to us to carry this treasure. So speaking of us, This is where Paul begins his argument. We have this treasure, he says, in jars of clay. In other words, we carry the news of the feast of the Lamb at the end of the times in old, brittle, and stained, disposable, glad containers. We drive forward the spread of the kingdom of God in old, rusted, early 2000 Toyotas. We hand out the living waters of life in leaking paper cups. In some, we carry the priceless treasure of the gospel of life, as you are all very aware, in these old, soggy, creaking, fragile sacks of bones and failing organs that we call our bodies. Isn't that a bitter, a bit counterintuitive to have such a message packaged in such horrible containers? Wouldn't it be better for the cause of the kingdom if the Kardashians, the president, Beyonce, the quarterback of the Eagles, Harry Styles, and the Phillies bullpen would go to advertise the gospel? Wouldn't it bring more people? Not so fast says the not-so-impressive Apostle Paul. God, he says, chose the very much not-impressive Trinity Church members to show to Hatborough that the surpassing power of the gospel of life belongs to him and not to us. Think of it this way. If anyone was ever saved in this church, if anyone's life was ever transformed, if any marriages were ever restored, if any financial support was ever given, if any sins and temptations were ever 
confronted. If anything good was ever accomplished at this church in its past 55 plus years, we just need to come here on a regular Sunday evening, take a quick look around, and realize, yes, it must have been from God. General George Washington once complained to a friend about the quality of the army he had at his disposal during the Revolutionary War. Quote, are these the men with which I am to defend America? He said. The fact that he led those men to victory only makes it more remarkable, doesn't it? And then you look around tonight and you think, are these the people against whom the gates of hell shall not prevail? The answer is yes. And the fact that that promise still stands only makes the one sustaining it more glorious. That's Paul's point. This is the first thing we needed to see tonight. A realization that comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comforted, comfortable. Because on the one hand, you might be here today thinking you are somewhat insignificant to the kingdom of God. You might be thinking you're not very smart, you're not very bright, not very eloquent, not very strong, you don't have great numbers, you might think you're still too young or maybe too old to make a difference. Let me tell you, you're right. Yet, as you sit here today in this service, and we gather and we pray with those who share their prayers, you are already being used by God to carry the burdens of your brothers and your sisters, and you do it through God's power, not yours. He is already using you to advance his kingdom as you support one another. On the other hand, at the same time, others might be thinking, well, of course God would use me. I mean, look at me. Through Paul, the Holy Spirit of God today reminds us that our best men, as the saying goes, are men at best. Yes, you might have riches and intellect, but you are still a dusty old jar of clay, and to dust you shall return. That should make you cease your self-promotion claims today. What you have, if you have anything, it was the Lord who gave it to you. When we grasp these two things held in tension, when God uses us to accomplish His purposes, when we look back and we realize we know more of the Bible than we did some years ago, that our children did learn something from us, that the deacons can operate with freedom because they have a steady and generous income of offerings and of skilled labor, or that our pastor went into hiding for three months and the building is still standing, we can know it was God all along. We are not a great people, but we do have a great God.
Still, there's one question that should be lingering in the air that should make us pause at this and think a little bit. It's subtle, but it's there. Because if you think about this, there is a difference between weakness and even humbleness and suffering. So yeah, I get why God would choose the weakest in this world to, sh to shame the strong. I, I get that. But does it have to hurt? Wouldn't his power be even more evident if he worked with this poor, poor man's army that we are and then protected us from all harm? Yet, some of you might be thinking right now, here are our busted knees, backs, blistered hands to show for, for our work in his name. Why does it have to hurt? Is the question. We will see the answer in our second point. Our suffering is Christ's suffering. We see that in verses 8 through 10. Our suffering is Christ's suffering. In this section, Paul explained to us how, in practice, our frailty demonstrates that it is God's power that moves in and through us. He gives us, beginning in verse 8, this, these parallels, this, this list of yeses but no's. It is a highly poetic phrase in its original, and some of its phonetic punch is lost in translation. The best translation I found that kept some of the original was from Dr. Mero Tenney. Verses 8 and 9 in his translation read like this. We are squeezed, but not squashed. Bewildered, but not befuddled. Pursued, but not abandoned. Knocked down, but not knocked out. And this, this is what it means to carry the treasure of the gospel in these earthen vessels. And he barely needs any illustration because this is something that you are all to aware of. You all know what it means to be and to feel squeezed, bewildered, pursued, and knocked down. This is somewhat a short but comprehensive list that includes emotional, mental, relational, physical suffering, more or less in this order. And I believe, unfortunately, that you all know all of that all too well more or less. And what Paul is trying to demonstrate is that we suffer in every way, yes, but to a point. Our suffering is not consummated. It never reaches the point of no return. He makes that clear when he shows the parallels, that this parallels of yes but no reflects our union with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, he says that in verse 10, that we carry in our bodies the death of Christ so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested. Do you see what he's saying when he says that? He's telling you, Christian, today, right now, 
In your own body, flesh and bones, you carry a message. The message of the one who died but came back to life. The very fact that I can call you Christian if you are so already tells a story. Your daily life of toil and pain is the story of Christ who descended from heaven into the hellish conditions of earthly life so that his people united through faith to him could have life. Many commentators note that the word for death and death of Jesus in verse 10 is the Greek word necrosis from which we get the word necrosis. You don't need a seminary degree to figure that one out. But there's another word in Greek for death and that's not, not the word that Paul uses. The point is that, that we get from the word necrosis is our entire lives paint a picture, a living picture for all the world to see of Jesus suffering not only in his maximum at the cross, his death, but his dying as his suffering through his entire life, that small, that's, that long day-by-day process of dying and experiencing the, the misery of life in this world as it day-by-day day becomes more and closer to death. You see, Jesus' misery did not begin on Good Friday, but on Christmas Day, when the Son of God also became the son of Mary and Joseph and had to carry on his own body the same inevitable death sentence we all do the moment we are born, this spiritual and bodily necrosis that starts the moment we are born and goes on until it finds its end. Aha! Gotcha! You might be thinking, you might have thought, as I finished the last sentence. Well, you said, Mr. Preacher, that our suffering is never consummated just a minute ago. Paul said it is always just to a point. How can you then say that we all will die, as you might have heard this morning? What about death? Well, let me ask you this, and I know the answer because I know most of you. Have you ever walked alongside a seasoned believer in your last days of pilgrimage in this dusty earth? Have you ever been encouraged by those who on the brink of death say that they long to be with Jesus their Savior? Those who know and say confidently that they ran the race and fought the good fight? If so, then you know the answer to this one. The fact that we are united to Jesus means that this life, his life, his eternal, resurrected, and glorious life is also ours which is demonstrated by this fact that I just illustrated, that not even death can make us feel utterly squashed, befuddled, abandoned, or knocked out. And this is one of the greatest 
and most excellent testimonies and witnesses that we can give to this world of the power of God for salvation and the gospel. Those who only through divine strength face the last enemy with confidence, knowing that they will not be destroyed or see corruption. This is what it means to carry the glory of the gospel in a jar of flesh and bone clay. Thinking of this this week, my mind immediately went to an old Latin phrase that caught my attention some years ago. The Latin phrase, ubi amor, ibi dolor, after losing its rhyme in translation, reads, where there is love, there is pain. This traditional use of that phrase is just a rather silly reminder of how love and passion can lead young hearts to heartbreak. But what I have learned in my not-so-long walk with the Lord is actually the inversion of that phrase, ubi dolor, ibi amor, where there is pain, there is love. Which is a very good summary of this passage. When and where there is pain, there is a reminder of God's love for his people to the point of death so that they may live. You see, at the cross, where we find the most concentrated, incandescent, immeasurable, and unbearable pain, love superabounded. Now, where there is hurt, tiredness, weariness, weariness, and sadness, there is also the power and the glory of the gospel reminding us in our very sufferings the price for our acceptance. So remember this, sisters and brothers. While right now you struggle under the frailty of your bodies and the feebleness of your soul, your struggles with mental, emotional relation and physical health are not punishment, are not karma or something like that. Our aching joints and our ever-rolling tears assure us that just as the suffering of Jesus was not final, yours who is united to him is not as well. And just as you carry his necrosis on your skin, you also carry his life. Your suffering unites you with your Savior, who suffered for his entire life, deprived of his heavenly glory, only to rise again to new life, and then bring us all together with him. Your pain reminds you that you might have occasional respite here in this life and hope of eternal rest in the next. Because after all, he was the one who was squeezed until squashed, bewildered and befuddled. He was the one pursued and abandoned. He was the one knocked down to the point of being knocked out. So we didn't have to. When you grasp this, 
you when you understand that you are a walking, talking, and hurting picture of the gospel, it becomes clear why we suffer even when working for the sake of God and His people. It becomes clear, yes, that it is okay to feel tired, even exhausted, when we put our lives on the lines, our lives on the line for the sake of the helpless, the poor, the orphans, and the widows. This is what our brief, brief last point tonight is about. Our suffering preaches the gospel. We see that in verses 11 and 12. Our suffering preaches the gospel. In verse 11, Paul reinforces his last point. We who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. We are dying daily so that Jesus' life is manifested. And then he delivers the final and strongest punch of this passage in verse 12. Briefly, he says, so death is at work in us, but life in you. And then you go back and you reread the text, and you notice that Paul has been using the first person plural throughout the whole thing. It's we have this treasure, we are afflicted, we who live, death is at work in us. And then in the last sentence, at the very last moment, he says that all of that is so that there will be life in you. This is a practical outcome of what he has said up to this point. God shows his power by using weak people and in their suffering and pain, those weak vessels embody, literally, and I mean literally, they embody the message of the gospel, the good news of abundant life in the midst of misery and death. Then, and because of death, because of that, in their death-in-life ministries, they become life in death to those they preach and minister to. To sum all of that and explain more clearly than I could, in the words of a dear seminary professor, those in every age who faithfully preach Christ will manifest his death and resurrection as participants in what they proclaim. While Paul was primarily referring to his own apostolic ministry, with which none of us have, this truth can be applied similarly to all of those who toil and suffer for the sake of God and his people. Yes, it applies to those who sit under books and commentaries during the week to prepare sermons, but also applies to those who sit quietly at the back on Sunday night, but during the week are pouring down their bodies as a fragrant offering to God, giving rides, doing groceries, scrubbing floors, visiting the lone people with the sole purpose of merely being a pair of ears to those who are alone. When we do that, we are, as I say often, God's hands and feet at work in this world. And when we become tired and exhausted because of that 
and we do, I know, we are nothing short of embodiments of the gospel message. The message that ultimately there is love in our lives because there was a lot of pain on the shoulders, joints, and bones of our Savior. Yes, friends, all of that to say it is okay to feel exhausted. It is not an accident. It's by default in design. One commentator puts it this way, in the midst of the greatness, the greatest weakness, in the midst of the greatest weakness of death, God manifested his strength by raising Jesus from the dead. So while we are afflicted in the service of Christ, he says, our afflictions serve to make known both the death and the life of Jesus, which bring life to all who believe. God's power and strength are most manifest in our exhaustion, in our feeling stretched out like butter spread over too much bread. In it, we remind ourselves and then we preach to others that salvation, peace, rest, and glory ultimately come from Him, not from our efforts. May this be an encouragement to you this night when you go to bed dreading the many labors that come on Monday. Ubi dolor, ibi amor, where there is pain, there is love. Let us pray. Assist us mercifully, O Lord, in our supplications and prayers. And dispose the way of your servants toward the attainment of everlasting salvation. That among all the changes and chances of this mortal life, we may ever be defended by your most gracious and ready help. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray all of that and we say together, Amen.